Welcome to the Lake Point Church Weekend Messages Podcast. Thanks for joining us to hear the latest sermons happening at our church. We pray that God speaks to you in a timely way through this message. And if you're encouraged by this podcast, be sure to rate, review, and share it to help get the word out. You can find more digital content to feed your faith and our other podcasts by visiting lakepoint.church/digital. Now, let's tune into the message for today. Point family, hey, it's so good to be joining in with you in the living rooms and kitchens on patios just all over the country. And uh, man, I'm really excited to share God's word with you today. Hey, if you got your Bibles, um, if you could head over to Matthew chapter 11. Uh, Matthew 11 is going to be now, now, fair warning, I'm going to get there. It's going to take me a few minutes to get there, but you can go ahead and turn. And while you're turning there, uh, what's happening in this series, we're starting a new series today that we're calling new normal. And that's kind of a phrase that people are tossing around all the time right now is, hey, we're gonna re- return to a new normal. And uh, I'll shoot you really straight. I'm getting kind of sick of hearing that, like new normal, new normal, new normal, new normal. I, in some ways, I just wanna return to the old normal. Um, but there's some ways that I wanna return to the old normal. And then I'll be honest, there's some ways where like, I really, really, really don't wanna return to the old normal. Um, I don't want to have just kind of gotten through this season of quarantine and COVID and shelter in place. I want God to have done something in me that makes me into a new person on the other side of this thing so that my new normal looks a lot more like Jesus than my old normal. So man, I'm really good with restaurants and hospitals and uh, economies going back to normal. But, but I want me personally, and I, I want us as a church, I want us to go forward to a more Christ-like normal that's full of love and joy and peace. And so uh, let me get right into this today. And I, and I wanna go ahead and uh, acknowledge something really quick. Um, almost everything you are about to hear came from a book that I read a few weeks ago during kind of our shelter-in-place time at home. And so I wanna strongly recommend this. Um, This is a book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by a pastor from Portland, Oregon, a guy named John Mark Comer. I just wanna acknowledge this book, and if you get a chance to pick this guy up after this message, you can digest some of these concepts at a much deeper level. But I I just want you to know that before I get in so that I give uh, proper attribution. So let me do this. Let me begin by quoting a uh, a guy named Meyer Friedman, who is a, uh, a cardiologist that's now gone to be with the Lord. And he was a very famous cardiologist. He was the guy that discovered the type A personality. Uh, Meyer Friedman, in his research, what he said is he, he described our generation as a generation that suffered from an epidemic of what he called, he called it hurry sickness, hurry sickness. And here's how he described it. And this may sound a smidge familiar to you, okay? He said, hurry sickness, it's this feeling of constantly rushing, The feeling like you're always behind, this pressured sense that there's just never enough time. Uh, Now, here's what I wanna do, and I'm gonna be the guinea pigs with these 20 people in the room here. Uh, And if you could help me out at home, just kind of get your fingers ready in the chat and you can play along. What I wanna do is I wanna give you guys, you're my guinea pigs for everybody that's watching. I wanna give you a description of hurry sickness, some symptoms. And here's what I'd like you to do. If you're a person who feels constantly hurried, I just want you to raise your hand. You know, when we get in, you just kind of do that. I want you to raise your hand. And so here's what he said, that if you're a person 
that suffers from hurry sickness, uh, you might be a person who, when you come to a stoplight and there's uh, two lanes, one car in each lane, you're a person who you guess, based on the make, model, and year of the vehicle, which one is going to go first. Because God forbid that you would get behind the slower car and lose five seconds, okay? God forbid. Uh, number two, uh, let's say you're at a Target, and there's two lanes there. And uh, you are approaching the lanes to figure out which one you should go into, and before you approach them, you start counting the people in each line, judging each of their personalities and their levels of aggression to figure out uh, which line you want to get to. And then if you're really sick, I mean like you're a total wacko sicko, then when you get into line A, you keep track in line B of the person you would have been in line B, okay? <laughs> if you're just totally sick. Now, if you're a person based on those descriptions who suffers from hurry sickness, would you just raise your hand? Would you do that? Y'all are sick. What a sick church. What a sick church we have. And I have a feeling in the chat, some people are going, that's me, that's me, that's me. Well, that's a bigger deal than we might realize when it comes to the care of our souls, uh, I want to quote a, a pastor hero of mine, a guy named John Ortberg. John Ortberg was a teaching pastor at a church in Chicago, a very large, growing church, especially in the 90s, that at that time, it, it was, admittedly, it was a dysfunctional church. John Ortberg called his mentor, it was a Christian philosopher, a guy named Dallas Willard, and he called him one day, and he said this. He said, he called him because he said, um, I love what I'm accomplishing, but I'm hating who I'm becoming. And he asked him the question, Dallas, what do I have to do to end up the husband, the father, the follower of Christ that I want to be? You know, what do I got to do to end up the me that I want to be? And he described this conversation. He said there was a very, very long pause. And then Dallas Willard said this. He said, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And John Arbreg, he wrote it down, you know, like most of us would. He wrote it down and then he went, Okay, what else? You know, <laughs> that's what he did. Let me hurry to the next thing that you're going to tell me. And uh, Dallas Willard said, long pause again, and then he said, there is nothing else. He said, hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. Now, uh, if that's not making any sense to you, let me just give a, a quick uh, differentiation here. There's a difference between busy and hurry. And let me explain that. Busy, it's an outer condition. It's when we have many things in our life to do. Hurry is different than that. Hurry, it's a disease of the soul. It's when I'm so preoccupied with the next task, the next goal, the next appointment, that I'm unable to simply live in connection with my heavenly Father and be truly present with the people that God puts in my path. And can I just point this out to you guys? Jesus was very often busy, he was never hurried. Often busy, never hurried. Now here's what I wanna say, and this may sound a little counterintuitive. What I wanna say is that hurry is arguably the greatest spiritual problem in our culture. And, and I want you to play along with this little thought experiment for a second here, okay? You know, it's interesting for all you Bible scholars, you, you may know this. Uh, the three, according to New Testament scholars, the three great values of the kingdom of God, think about this, are love, joy, and peace. Those are three great values of the kingdom of God, okay? Now, if you think about hurry, how hurry jives with love, joy, and peace, I think the fact that hurry does not you really go well with peace, we all get that. 
Um, I think actually we probably understand that hurry doesn't go awesome with joy. You know, it's really interesting. Both Jesus and really almost every spiritual master from every religion, worldview, and philosophy in history, they all say the same thing, that joy is found by being present to the moment. That's why Jesus said, hey, you want to be happy? Don't worry about tomorrow, what you'll eat, drink, or, or wear. Just like, stay here, because that's where the joy is. So we know hurry's not compatible with uh, peace. It's not compatible with joy. Uh, let, me, let me just do the last one a, a little deeper so you see it. Hurry's not, think about how, how hurry and love. Think about how those two things mix together. Uh, here's what I've noticed. I've noticed that all of my very worst moments as a dad and a husband, they all involve hurry like every single one of them. If you are not tracking with me, the next time you're trying to get your wife and three young kids out the door to be on time to an appointment, pay attention to how you relate to them in those moments. And let me just ask, does it look like love? Is, is, is that like what comes out to you? Do, do you seem super loving when you're getting the keys, picking up the pacifier, straightening the hair, frantically trying to get a car seat into the car? Uh, you know, every now and then somebody will just say to me, hey, pastor, pastor, I have never cussed. Uh, that's because you never try to put in a car seat when you're trying to be somewhere on time. You know, just give it time. That's going to happen to you. It's just, I've just noticed this, that a hurry and love are like oil and water. Like they, they just don't mix together. So I want you to think about this. Hurry is fundamentally incompatible with all three of the great values of the kingdom of God. Love, joy, and peace. I'll take it a step further. It is totally incompatible with a a vibrant relationship with God. Now, I, I'm trying to, I'm doing my math here and figuring out how many of these people that are in the room will understand what I'm saying. Uh, I am old enough to vividly remember the 1990s. And they were, who's with me? Are you with me? You gotta come? Okay, thank you, that's right. If you're in the chat, I love you. You're my friends, okay? Uh, three things I'll say, Saved by the Bell, Doc Martens, Dave Matthews Band. That's it, okay, there we go. If you know what those things are, we could be friends. Okay, that's just... Now, in the 90s, we had this thing. It's very foreign now. We had this thing called boredom. That was like a thing that happened in the 90s. Now, some of you who are younger than can remember the 90s, you're like, well, I know boredom. That's when I'm trying to, you know, the Wi-Fi's bad, and I'm trying to refresh my Instagram feed, and it takes more than two seconds, you know. Okay, well, let me... Boredom is that times like a thousand, that's what it is. So here's some examples. In the 90s, like I remember moments where I would be on an airplane and I would bring a book onto the airplane and then I would finish my book in mid-flight and it was the only book that I brought. And when that happened in the 90s, like you just sat there. <laughs> like you opened the window and you looked out the window for potentially hours on end and that was it. Like, that was the whole experience. Uh, there were times where in the 90s, and this was admittedly much rarer for me, when you'd be working out, you're going to go work out somewhere. And in the 90s, uh, you know, you, listen, here's how it worked. You couldn't listen to music while you worked out because your discman couldn't fit in your pocket. You guys know what I... And then if it moved even a little, it was like you could... So you couldn't work out and listen to music at the same time. So if you were working out, you had to go with no headphones on, and you had to wait for machines or a treadmill, and you would just have to stand there and, and maybe even, like, talk to somebody. It was terrible. I mean, just terrible. I'll give you one other one. There were times where you'd be waiting in line at a grocery store, and there'd be five people ahead of you, and literally all you could do 
was just stand there. You couldn't do anything. You just had to look forward and wait like a psychopath. That's all you could do. <laughs> now, listen, do not hear me saying that I wish we could go back to you know, pre-smartphones and get rid of all the technology. I don't want to do that. I do want to say this. Guys, there's pros and cons to that. Okay, we know the pros. Can I point out a con? All of those little moments of boredom, they used to be potential portals into prayer. And now all of those moments are gone. Uh, the Bible says this. It says to be still and know that I am God. There's a knowledge of God that you can only get in the stillness. Hurry and a vibrant relationship with God. Those things are incompatible. Now, here's what I think everybody knows that's watching. Uh, we all understand that our world has sped up to a, an insane frenetic pace. Can I give you a little history on how we got where we are, okay? Uh, historians point to 1879 as the moment that was like a turning point in history as far as how we got where we're at. In 1879, Thomas Edison invented the light bulb, which cut our sleep way, 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 way back. Okay, fun fact. 150 years ago, this is gonna blow your mind. 150 years ago, the average American slept 11 hours a night. Ele somebody said preach. <laughs> somebody said preach. 11 hours a night, 150 years ago, average. 100 years ago, uh, technology changed our relationship to time because all these things called labor-saving devices started to be invented. So think about this. It used to be, if you wanted your house to be warmer, you had to go outside and chop wood, bring the wood inside, put it into a fire, and then 20 minutes later, your house would be warmer. Okay, now we push a button on a wall and warm air magically flows from the ceiling. Okay, it used to be that you had to walk everywhere you went or you rode on like a smelly animal to get where you wanted to go. And now we drive and, and, and we're too busy for that. We need self-driving cars now. We can't even do this. That's too much for us. Uh, it used to be that if you wanted to correspond with somebody out of town, you had to write a letter by hand. Like there was a time that you used this thing to write a letter to, to somebody. Now we have Siri. We can't even type it digitally. We have Siri to do these things. Now, interesting, in spite of all of these things, dishwashers, toasters, microwaves, washing machines, most people feel like they have less time, not more. What happened? We spent it on other things. Uh, you know, it's really funny. In the 1960s, what everybody thought was going to happen as labor-saving devices kind of became a thing in our culture, everybody thought, oh, in the future, they'll be working dramatically fewer hours. That's what they thought. Uh, there's a famous Senate subcommittee from 1967 where somebody on record in Senate in, in uh, 1967 said, and I quote, by 1985, the average American would work only 22 hours a week for 27 weeks a year. That's what they thought in 1967. They thought the main problem would be too much leisure. Instead, since 1973, leisure time has decreased 37% in America. Guys, that's a lot. Like, that's a lot. This even ramped up further with the death of the Sabbath in 1969. That's when uh, the gas station, it's when 7-Eleven opened. 7-Eleven, it was the first chain store to be open seven days a week. Before that, there was a day of the week where everything everywhere was closed except the church. Commerce couldn't happen. Nobody had any place to actually do any work. So it happened then, and then all this came to a climax in 2007 with the release of the iPhone. iPhone. iPhone iPhone, a recent study showed the average iPhone users touch, listen, the average iPhone user touches his or her phone 2,617 times a day, 
over 76 sessions for anywhere between two and a half to five hours. Now listen, this is doing something violent to our souls. This is doing something. Um, there's a saying, I'm kind of a, I like to read organizational leadership material. There's a, there's a saying in organi- organizational leadership literature, and here's, it's one of my favorite sayings. The saying goes, every system is perfectly designed to get the results it's getting. Every system is perfectly designed to get the results that it's getting. Well, here are the results that our pace in our culture is designed to get. Anxiety, mild depression, high stress, chronic emotional burnout, isolation, and the deterioration of meaningful relationships. Little to no sense of the presence of God in our lives. Guys, look at your lifestyle. It's perfectly designed to get the results that it's getting. Okay, now, enter Jesus in Matthew chapter 11. Uh, In Matthew 11, Jesus issues a, I'm gonna call it a welcome. You could call it a challenge, I'll call it a welcome where Jesus says this to anybody that would follow him. Listen close to how he says it. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest, rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, can I just clear up a confusion really quick with a passage? You know, we hear the word yoke, and if you know, yoke, that was an equipment used by oxen to carry a load. If you're somebody who's gone, man, if Jesus is speaking to burned out, depressed, weary, tired people, you may go, man, a yoke seems like the last thing that they need. You know, it seems like you would say, you know, hey, they need a mattress or a vacation, not a yoke, okay? Well, here's what's happening. In this era, for a teacher to talk about a yoke, here's what a yoke was. A yoke was a set of teachings on how to read the Old Testament. A yoke was a rabbi or a teacher's. It was kind of a a set of teachings on how to experience life to the full. So let me explain what Jesus was saying. What Jesus was saying is, listen, let's just all acknowledge something. Jesus was saying, life is hard. It's really hard. There are no ifs, ands, or buts. In fact, if you don't believe that life is hard, I already know something about you. You're very young, like very, very young. Okay, what Jesus is saying, he's saying, I can give you a way of carrying life that can be easy and restful. I can do that for you. Now, you may hear that. (laughs) And if you're like me and you grew up in the church, you've been exposed to faith for a long time, maybe you've been a Christian for decades, you may hear that and you may go, wait, Josh, like, I think I'm a Christian, but I'm really, really tired. So like, what gives? Am I missing something? Yes. The answer is yes, you are. Uh, Let me quote Dallas Willard again from earlier in the message. Dallas Willard commenting on this passage in Matthew 11, here's what he says. He says, in this truth lies the secret of the easy yoke. The secret involves living as Jesus lived in the entirety of his life and adopting his overall lifestyle. Now, let me say that one more way. What he's saying is, if you want to experience the restful, joyful, peaceful life of Jesus, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. That's what you've got to do. Um, Let me give an example of this uh, from my own life. So last year, I started doing CrossFit for the first time. Uh, Now, I just want to go ahead and say this. I'm a CrossFit guy, kind of in the same way that Olive Garden is Italian food, like (laughs) 
kind of, kind of not really, you know, that kind of thing. I'll show up every now and then and kind of do my thing and be embarrassed and leave. Uh, but when I first started doing CrossFit, there were two guys that I immediately disliked without ever speaking to them. Because I walked in and they were essentially like walking advertisements for CrossFit. You know, I was like, let me just like, don't take this the wrong way, but like, they looked awesome, <laughs> like awesome. Uh, their bodies were these perfect V's, you know, lines everywhere that I do not have. Uh, single digit body fat. Their warm up weights were like heavier than like my max outs, you know, whatever it was. Uh, they're these guys that like every shirt fits them exactly perfectly, okay? I hate them. I hate them. I hate these guys. So what would happen is these guys would walk in and I would look at them and I would think, oh, like I want that life. That's what I want. But then I would start to think about the lifestyle behind that life. And here's what I immediately think of. Uh, while I was binge watching Stranger Things 3 and eating sugar cookies until midnight, totally hypothetical situation. Uh, what they did is they ate celery and they went to bed at 9 p.m., okay? Uh, while I was sipping my second cup of coffee and my PJs in the morning, they were hitting 5 a.m. CrossFit classes in 30-degree weather. Uh, when I work out, whatever you call what I do, <laughs> I half work out and I half listen to Bill Simmons' NBA podcasts. Uh, they run intervals every 400 meters and stretch their lungs to the breaking point, okay? So I, here's what I do. I look at their lifestyle I really fast run a cost-benefit analysis, and I decide, not worth it. That's what I decide. It's the difference between want and need for me. Like, I want abs, I need tacos. Okay, that's how it works. <laughs> so for me, I'm like, okay, I'm out. Yeah, I'm out. So here's like, here's reality. Like, I want the life, but I'm not willing to adopt the lifestyle behind it. Guys, that's how a lot of us feel about Jesus. We read about his life of love, joy, peace, vibrant power in the Holy Spirit, and we think, I want that life, life to the full, but then we've never considered adopting the lifestyle of Jesus. So let me do this. Here's, here's how I want to land a plan on this message. I want to give you four, very briefly, you got to run quick, four habits of the easy yoke of Jesus, things that marked Jesus' life. These are the rhythms that resulted in Jesus living a life of, of unhurry, of peace and love and joy. Now, the first one I'm gonna do really, really quick, I'm just gonna mention it because we talk about it frequently. Number one is you, you simply, you must develop a rhythm of quiet time. Now listen, you may hear the word quiet time and you may roll your eyes and go, oh, quiet time, that sounds so 1996, okay? Stop, I have a reason for calling it a quiet time. You know, it's interesting, um, constantly throughout the gospels that describe Jesus' life, we get verses like this. It says, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Like very, very often, okay? The word that's translated uh, solitary place is the Greek word eremos, and it can be translated in a few different ways. It can be translated desert. Uh, it can be translated wilderness. It can be translated solitary place, or it can be translated, personal favorite, quiet place. Quiet place. That word, quiet place, is used 48 times in the New Testament. Now, let me show you how frequent, frequent it was in Jesus' life. The book of Luke only has 24 chapters. It, uh, it describes periodic increments of Jesus, the most important few years of Jesus' life. And in those 24 chapters, we're told that Jesus retreats nine times. 
This was a habit of Jesus. You cannot adopt the lifestyle of Jesus without a rhythm of retreating into a quiet place to stop, to relax in the presence of God, to pray and to hear from him in the scriptures. You just can't do it. Now, if you're kind of going like I used to constantly, if you're going, okay, I want to sit down in relaxed enjoyment of God's word and I don't know how to do it. Can I just help you? We've got a church-wide Bible reading plan where every day you can wake up and here's what we're reading together as an entire church body together. We call it Read the Book. It's a plan that we can all be in together so that every day when you wake up, you can go, that's what I'm reading with my church family. If you want to get on that Bible reading plan and just have something to relax into at the beginning of the day in your quiet time, you can simply text the words, read the book, to 20411. In fact, maybe the most spiritual thing you can do is just to pause and right now text, read the book to 20411 and begin this habit of retreating to a quiet place to hear from the Lord day by day. That's number one. Does that make sense? Okay, all right. Number two, Sabbath. Let's talk about Sabbath. We all know this, uh, the concept of the Sabbath. The word Sabbath, it comes from the Hebrew word Shabbat. Here's what it literally means. It literally means to stop. To stop, it's a day to stop. It's a day to stop working, to stop worrying, to stop wanting. Just stop. That's the whole purpose of the day. And you stop for two purposes. You stop for rest and you stop for worship. Now, listen really close because this is really important. That the pattern of resting, of Sabbath, is patterned after creation. We're told that God created everything in six days. And then the Bible says he rested from all his work. Now, did you, did you catch that? It says that God rested. Okay, God rested. Okay, so you may go, hey, yeah, Josh, I'm not really into the Sabbath. I'm a high energy extrovert. Okay, yeah, but God rested. Okay, you may, yeah, 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 Josh, I get the Sabbath thing, but I work a demanding job that I love. I just can't make the time because, no, 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 God rested. You, you may go, man, Josh, I know, but I have three little kids at home and it's not really doable right now because, no, 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 like God rested. God rested. And the primary means by which we cultivate a heart of rest is by taking a day of rest. Can, can I blow your mind really quick? This, this actually blew my mind when I learned this. So there was a study by, I'm only, a, study by a doctor. I read, uh, it actually, this book pointed me to the study that was citing the happiest people on earth. And it cited this small group of Christians called Seventh-day Adventists, okay? Now, Seventh-day Adventists uh, we're near the top of the list, and they're people who are super, super religious about the Sabbath. Like, that's their thing. Like, they named themselves after it, okay? And this doctor noted that Seventh-day Adventists live 10 years longer than the average American on average. Isn't that interesting? Now, here's what blows my mind about that. If you Sabbath every seven days for a lifetime, it adds up to 10 years. 10 years. Now, why? Why does that happen? Because God has built a rhythm of work and then rest and work and then rest into the grain of the universe. I, let me just say it to you like this. A Sabbath is to your schedule what a tithe is to your budget. In the tithe, God says, hey, listen, me plus 90% of your income can go farther than you plus 10% of your, you plus 100% of your income. In the Sabbath, here's what God says. He says, listen, you will get more done with me in six days than you can in seven days without me. 
And he gives us that promise. And a Sabbath, it's an exercise of restful trust in God. In the Sabbath, God is simply asking you, can you just trust me for one day? Can you trust me for a day? Okay, that's number two. Number three, number three is this practice of, we're just gonna call it simplicity. Simplicity. And this is a little counterintuitive, so track with me. Do you remember when Jesus one time said, he said this, I quoted it earlier. He said, don't worry about what you'll eat, drink, or wear. And then he went on and said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added to you. Now, one of Jesus' followers, a disciple named Paul, he put it like this in a bit of a different way. He said, if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. In other words, let me give you a definition of simplicity. Here's what it is. It's the intentional promotion of the things we most value and the removal of everything that distracts us from them. That's the type of life that Jesus lived. He said, one thing I'm gonna focus on, entering into the kingdom of God and living an eternal type and quality of life now, and that's gonna be my single-minded focus, and I'm gonna try to eliminate everything in my life that doesn't do that. Now, a lot of times when people talk about simplicity, they apply it to your stuff. What the, I, I think the Bible wants to do is it, it does want to do that, but it wants to apply it to your schedule. Can I be really honest? And by the way, this is a confession, not a judgment. Confession, not a judgment. Can I describe what a lot of people and at times in my life has been a normal day in a person's life? Okay, normal day. You wake up and if you are like 91% of Americans, according to research, the first thing you do is you check your phone or your tablet. So you wake up, you get right on your phone or your tablet, and then you stay in bed until the very last minute, and then you rush into the shower. And we don't, don't want any silence there, and so we turn on the radio or a podcast, and we get into the shower as long as it won't, won't wake up anybody. And then we're rushing around, and we get ready, and we're five minutes behind when we need to be wherever we need to be. We get in the car. As soon as we get in the car, our Bluetooth connects, and we've got sound just going as soon as we get in the car. And then you go to Starbucks, and if God forbid you have to wait in line, God forbid, you immediately start checking social media or answering emails. And then you get to work, and at work you have 10 consecutive hours of emails, texts, slacks, base camps, calls, voicemails, all these things. Then you do that, and then you come home. And then when you get home, here's what a lot of our lives are like. You're rushing three moderately talented kids, if we're honest, to different practices, recitals, games, matches, and events. And then you rush, 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 rush until the kids finally go to bed. And then as soon as they go to bed, you immediately turn on Netflix and binge whatever show that you're watching right now. And then you fall into bed an hour later than you'd actually hoped. And that's every day of your life. And can I just point something out? We have this compulsion to fill every second with something, something and every silence with sound. We have this. Now, now listen, this is even, listen, again, this is a confession, not a judgment. I'm a psycho. Uh, for me, this is seriously what happens to me. Even when I sit down to read my Bible, I have this background program running in my head going, how can I turn this into a sermon? Like this happens to me. If I sit down and I see a peaceful or a beautiful moment, I immediately think this would be a great Instagram post. Or if I'm alone with my thoughts, I'm going, oh, that would be a great tweet. Okay, that's what's happening. We have this compulsion to fill every second with something, every silence with a sound. Here's a haunting question for you. Here's a haunting question for me. How many times was I one second away from hearing a life-altering word from God and then I got an iPhone notification or I went straight to social media? And I was right there. 
Uh, you know, I mentioned this earlier, the average iPhone user touches his or her iPhone 2,617 times per day. By way of contrast, the psalmist said, I have set the Lord always before me. What would my life be like if God touched my mind as frequently as my hand touched my iPhone? Now, let me bring this back. Here's why we're preaching this in the middle of this new normal series. Here's what I've noticed in this quarantine shelter in place season. What everybody is saying that I'm talking to are things like this. They're saying, man, I hate what it's doing to the economy. I hate what it's doing to people's health. I hate that the fact that there's nothing on TV. I hate that people are suffering. But here's what, here's what I hear frequently, but I'm loving the schedule. Everything's just a little slower. Uh, I'm noticing in my neighborhood, dads are playing in their yards with kids. Families are walking together. People are sitting on their front porches. It's like we hit a button and transferred to 1956. That's what happened. Now, let me just kind of press into you on this. Here's what normal is in our culture. Here's what normal is. Normal is you gotta have your kids in this and you gotta do that and you gotta go there and it's gotta be now. Can I just say this? Guys, don't go back to normal. Like, don't go back to normal because we had normalized a violence upon our souls. Listen, why don't you become a conscientious objector to the insanity of this godless world that is rushing around, busy ignoring him? Why don't you do that? Uh, one person at Church Online recently said, I'm gonna schedule, when I come back, I'm gonna schedule my life around the Lord instead of scheduling the Lord around my life. That's a wonderful aim. And our last one, it's gotta be quick. There is a habit of belief that we've got to adopt. To rest at a soul level, and especially if you're not a person of faith, like this is for you, I really need you to hear this. To rest at a soul level deep down. We have to believe deeply that we are saved by grace apart from anything that we ever have done, ever will do, or anything that we are doing. And when we believe that very deeply, it frees us from the constant inner striving of all non-Christian religion. In John 6, one time somebody came to Jesus and they said this, they said, hey Jesus, what, what must we do to do the work that God requires of us? In other words, Jesus, what do I gotta do to get God to accept me and like for him to be okay with me? What do I gotta do? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe the one that he has sent. In other words, stop all of your outward working and just believe me that I died for your sins, that I was raised on the third day, and that you can be adopted into this family by faith. You see, here's how it works. In every other religion, Jesus, in every other religion, God, or a concept of God loves you based on what you do or don't do. Jesus says, by believing in Christ, you become a child of God. And now God loves you based on who you are and not what you do. Okay, now, um, uh, big, let me, Quick announcement, big week in the Howerton family. Three days ago, my youngest daughter, Felicity, asked Jana to pray to receive Christ. That's a big deal. Now, I know, we're really excited about that. That's a big deal for us. Felicity, you know, it's a really emotional time for us as a family and just walking with her. Uh, with my two daughters, I've got a habit that I've been doing with them off and on for years. And what I'll do, and they think it's really annoying, but I think it's really awesome, so I'm gonna keep doing it is right before bed, I'll get on the side of their bed and I'll kind of lean on the bed and I'll just kind of snuggle up right next to them and I'll, I'll say, you know, hey Felicity, why does daddy love you? And then we go through this little game. Felicity will, she always says the same thing. She'll start and she'll say, is it because I'm smart? And I'll say, you are smart, but that's not why I love you. 
And then she'll say, is it because I'm funny? And I'll say, Felicity, you are very funny, but that's not why I love you. And then she'll say, is it because I'm good? And depending on the day, I'll say, it is definitely not because you're good. You know, whatever it is. That ain't why, girl. That is not why, you know, that kind of thing. I'll say, but I will say, I'll say, baby, you are very good, but that's not why I love you. And then she'll kind of, this is the one she thinks is really going to get me. Is it because I'm pretty? And I'll say, you are very pretty, but that's not why I love you. And then I'll ask her, why does daddy love you? And she'll say, because I'm your daughter. That's why. I'm trying to ingrain in her that I love her based on my relationship with her, not her performance for me. In 1 John 3, 1, the Bible says this. It says, see, like imagine, like, whoa, like make sure you don't miss this. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. That verse is God's way of getting on our bedside and saying, why does daddy love you? And he's reminding us, listen, it's not based on anything you have done, are doing, or will do. It's just based on the fact that you're my son or you're my daughter. And when you believe that deep down, it frees you from an inner striving and restlessness. Now, listen, I know some of you guys that are watching, like you've maybe never crossed that line of faith and you've never given your life to Christ. And maybe you need to believe for the first time that that God can accept you, not based on anything you have done or anything that you will do, but simply by faith in Jesus, his death and resurrection, God can save you. And if you're a person who needs to cross that line of faith, here's what I'm gonna ask. Would you just like, in your chair right now, would you just pray with me? And from a sincere heart, just bow your head right now. And from a sincere heart, would you just pray? God, I know that I'm a sinner. Pray, God, I confess that I've lived my life putting other things besides you in front of you first in my life. But I believe that your son died for my sins and that he was raised on the third day. And so I accept your salvation as a free gift, not based on anything that I have ever done. And from this day forward, as best as I know how, I will put you first. Thank you, God, for making me a son or a daughter. And hey, guys, in the room and all over the place, can we celebrate the people that may have actually made that decision today? Yeah, man. We are really, really, really excited with you. And listen, what I want you to know is is we want to celebrate that with you. And the Bible says that the way that we demonstrate that we really meant that, that it was sincere, is by following Jesus in baptism. And we as a church, like I know these people, we want to celebrate that with you. Like we, we want to do that. And so when we regather as a church, we're going to have an enormous baptism service. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be awesome. And, and we want to celebrate like with you. And so if you'd be willing to let us celebrate with you when we come back together and are interested in learning about baptism, if you'd simply text the word LIFE to the number 20411. Text the word LIFE to the number 20411. And we wanna come along beside you. I love you guys. Thanks for opening your heart to the word. Thanks for listening today. For more biblical teaching and worship, join us for our church online live weekend services on Saturdays at 5 p.m. and Sundays at 9.30 and 11 a.m. Central Standard Time. 
For more information about all the digital ministries of Lake Point, visit lakepoint.church/digital. Lake Point.